Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sebarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Lehman, a fellow at Hans, to an editor of City Journal. Charles, how are you doing today? I'm good. I saw you as recently as yesterday. Listeners, Aaron and I went out to dinner with a number of friends last night. We had, uh, we had fancy Chinese food, which is like the highlight of my week. I was very excited for it. It was, it was good. It was good. Yeah, right. Nobody, nobody would go in and nobody would try the frog with me. That was, that was the letdown. Actually, yeah. I, I mean, there were volunteers for the frog, but I was like, do I want to spend money on frog or do I want to spend money on not frog? And the answer was not frog. That's good. That's good. You displayed some baseline level of rationality there. You I would have, I would have questioned, I would have questioned your mental, I would have questioned your mental stability if you weren't from Charles. Absolutely, where you're going. That is, that is the idea. We've to ask, we have to ask for guests this week if the title of our podcast is offensive. Maybe he's going to tell us to change it. We're going to find out. Wait, why would, why would our, why would our title be offensive? Well, you know, it's all about, it's, it's, it's about institutions. Oh, yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. No, why don't I, why don't I lead the listeners into what we're talking about this week? Which is, which is deinstitutionalization. So finally, institutionalized is going to be deinstitutionalized. This is the last episode. You never know. I'm kidding. We're going to, we're going to do podcasting in the, in the community-based context. There have been advantages in the psychopharmacology. So, you know, I don't know. Aaron, Aaron will finally be fixed. We'll finally, we'll finally figure out what's wrong with Aaron. This is, oh, this is the story of the podcast. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's, a, it's a grand psychological epic where we really... The, the Straussian reading of it is that every episode is actually exploring some deep trauma or underexplored insecurity and and this is the episode in which all will be resolved yeah yeah deinstitutionalization the number of american li- americans living in institutions long-term facilities people with severe physical mental disabilities has collapsed since the 1960s it's driven by a variety of prior this this move this shift is driven by a variety of priorities by fiscal constraint by changes in evolution in psychopharmacology and treatment practices but also by the priorities of activists who are concerned about the civil rights and human rights implications of institutionalization. Our guest has written extensively on the topic about the trends of deinstitutionalization, but also about the costs of it and potential downsides to the dramatic shift in the service provision space over the past 60 years. Before we get into that with him, Aaron, what is your what is your interest this week? What are you what are you thinking about? I have a lot of interests, but the main one is something that we've discussed before on this podcast, although perhaps not in quite so explicit terms, it's the limits of liberalism and in particular liberalism's inability to figure out what to do with the not fully autonomous, with the mentally handicapped, with those who are not self-sufficient individuals. We talked a bit about this during the homelessness episode we did a few months ago. We've talked about it in other contexts too. But when it comes to mental health facilities, and in particular state mental health facilities to which people with mental illnesses can be involuntarily committed, it really rings to the fore kind of the the limits of an ideology that's all about maximizing choice and freedom. I know this is a podcast about institutions. We like to talk about structures and incentives and stay away from kind of overly ideationalized accounts of why things are happening. But this is a topic where I think it's hard to avoid the the, the ideological elephant in the room, namely that our, our kind of political and philosophical culture 
does not have a great account of what to do with people who, for example, are severely autistic and are a danger to themselves and others. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm interested in. And, and also, what should we do about those people? And why aren't we doing some of the things that would probably help them? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I'm I'm interested in a similar theme. What are the what are the impl- you know our, our guest has written about mental disability services institutions, but also about prisons. And, you know, I think a common theme in his work is that there are some people for whom an environment of sort of total structure or of substantially more structure than you can get in civilian society is what's conducive to their living well. And so I'm you know I'm I'm interested in what are what are the practical implications? Is is that true? Why should we think it's true? And what are the practical implications of that? For as, as as you allude to, sort of, you know, how how we think about the good life. This is in some sense is a subset of the criticism of liberalism does a poor job dealing with children. But you know, here is yes. liberalism does a poor job dealing with a wide variety of categories who are not of categories of people who are not sort of perfectly suited to being a rational, autonomous individual. All that seems like a great topic to discuss with our guest. John Hershauer is an assistant editor at the American Conservative and a Robert Novak Journalism Fellow. For his Novak project, he's reported extensively on institutions and deinstitutionalization, including the shuttering of two of Pennsylvania's four remaining institutions for the mentally ill in my very own City Journal magazine. John, welcome to Institutionalized. Thank you for having me. So we'll get into all the, the history and the raw facts in a minute. But first, play devil's advocate. A lot of people explain to us sort of the strongest case for the anti-institutionalization position and then maybe explain in short why you don't find it compelling. Sure. So I I think distinction has to be made at the outset between the question of deinstitutionalizing people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, and I include under that umbrella severe autism and autistic-related behaviors, and then deinstitutionalizing people with serious, persistent mental illnesses such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Because I think the negative externalities associated with deinstitutionalization of both of the populations have been drastically different. And I think the deinstitutionalization of people with intellectual disabilities, you know, what used to be called mental retardation, has been much more successful, broadly speaking, than the deinstitutionalization of people with serious and persistent mental illness. And so I'll take, I'll take the question and I'll, I'll kind of steel man the, the case on both the mental illness and the developmental disability side. So first on the developmental disability side, which is what the City Journal piece was about, was about the remaining state institutions for people with developmental disabilities in Pennsylvania. I think the strongest argument for involuntarily moving those people out, because unlike mental hospitals, state mental hospitals for the mentally ill, most of the people with developmental disabilities living at those institutions are doing so voluntarily. Now they're doing it you know, by proxy for the most part through their guardians, their guardians are choosing to have them live there. And that counts, you know, effectively as being a voluntary decision, even if the individual themselves may want to move out. If their guardian superintends and overrides that decision, they're going to stay at the institution. But but for maybe 10% of the people in those facilities who are adjudicated not guilty by reason of mental defect as opposed to insanity, so they committed a crime, but they didn't have the requisite IQ to be placed in a normal prison and be held accountable that way, they'll be placed in those state facilities for people with developmental disabilities. But excluding those people from the conversation for a moment, most of the people living at those types of facilities are doing it voluntarily. And so the best argument, I think, to moving those people out is that 
the overwhelming majority, from a social scientific perspective, the overwhelming majority of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, even severe and serious intellectual and developmental disabilities, have improved on a wide array of criteria after being discharged from large congregate institutions. So adaptive behaviors, like their ability to tie their own shoes or to make strides in their hygiene cleanliness. Nothing is absolute and there are individuals who have failed after having moved out. And if that weren't the case, I wouldn't hold the position that I do. But there are, I would say over 80% of the people who have been discharged from these institutions have made significant clinical improvements upon being discharged. And so the steel man case would be, you know, these people are living what amount to very restricted, restrictive lives mm -hmm. in these institutions. And maybe they don't need that structure and maybe moving them out, even when they feel like they don't want to, right? Because as I, as I cite in the city journal piece, upwards of about 90% of the individuals themselves, not their guardians, but the individuals themselves yeah. say, I want to stay here. But the argument for saying, well, you may want to stay here, but it's better for you to move out is to say, well, maybe these people don't know anything else. Maybe they've been institutionalized their whole lives and they think, you know what, this is all that there is for me. And this is all the stability that I can ever expect. But maybe upon being deinstitutionalized and moved out forcibly into a community-based setting, they'll realize new horizons in their lives that they never could have foreseen in the institution. So that's the steel man case on the, on the developmental dis disability side. Now I can respond to that briefly if you want me to, or I can move over to the mental health side, whichever you want. Why don't you move over to the mental health side? But one quick thing is I just want to note, it seems like the other part of the steel man that's kind of implied, but not stated is, okay, so this will improve their welfare. That's part of it. But also if they move out of a state run institution, doesn't that also save the state money? Yes. Though that... So it's like a win-win, right? Like it helps them and we don't have to pay as much money. The, that question specifically is actually more complicated in the social okay. science because when you're talking about moving a person with severe developmental disabilities out of a facility like that, at an institution, you have one single location paying for a doctor on grounds 24 hours a day, sure. four-hour nursing unit. You have a single purchaser of medication, psychotropic drugs, and so forth. Okay. Of recreational staff on campus. Whereas you move somebody to a community-based setting and you basically have to replicate the services in the institution a sure. hundred times. So there are debates within the literature about sure, which sure. more cost-effective, but people do make the argument that it's less expensive. And to the extent there are cost savings, it tends to be from the fact that you're moving people from a public setting with unionized workforce into a private setting where oftentimes yeah. you have low-wage employees and a lot of turnover, right. which is part of the case actually against the institutionalization from my point of view. But yeah, so then pivoting over to the to the mental health side, I think the strongest case against, or excuse me, for deinstitutionalizing people with severe and persistent mental illness is that there's no reliable criteria to, to diagnose someone with a mental illness other than you know, the observations of psychiatrists. So we can't put someone through an MRI machine and say 100% with 100% certainty that they have schizophrenia. We can't administer a blood test and have that blood test come back and know for certain that they have bipolar disorder. Now, with schizophrenia, let's use that example. There are a constellation of symptoms beyond just the observable, you know, hearing voices or reporting hearing voices or the sort of erratic behavior that's associated with somebody who has a psychotic illness. For the most part, I mean, it's, I don't know exactly what the percentage is, but I think it's upwards of 65% of people with schizophrenia 
have enlarged ventricles in their brain. They have very similar brain imaging to stroke patients. And there are other sort of diagnostic criteria that aren't observed in every single person with schizophrenia, but are observed in the preponderance of individuals with schizophrenia. And so it's not, a, it's the question of the biological origins of mental illness is like very complicated and is actually above my yeah. knowledge. But the, the strongest argument for deinstitutionalizing people, and this is something that Thomas Zaz, who actually, interestingly, I mean, Thomas Zaz thought that mental illness was a myth. That was his whole uh, thesis. But even Thomas Zaz thought it was inhumane to move people out of institutions when they wanted to live there because, you know, basically what Charles was laying out in the intro, right, that there are some people who need that sort of structure and the people who we call mental, mentally ill, even if Zaz himself wouldn't agree with that label, he, he felt that there was some subset of people who could have stood to benefit from the structure that an institution provided. Mm -hmm. Steelmanning the case, yeah, I mean, how can we deprive someone of their liberty without having a dispositive test that tells us, you know, in a binary sense, one or zero, this person has a serious mental illness and is going to be an imminent danger to himself or someone else. And if you look at the trials of someone who is trying to plead insanity, right. defense will bring in their own forensic psychiatrist, the prosecution brings in their own forensic psychiatrist, and oftentimes the two forensic psychiatrists come to different, different conclusions about whether the person is culpable for the act in question. And so if we can't get people at the highest level of the psychiatric profession to agree about a person's mental state, not just when they commit a crime, but I mean, we're talking about locking someone up and, and depriving them of their freedoms. Yeah. If we can't reach anything like consensus on that question, how can we justify taking people out of society and depriving them of their liberties? That would be the steel man case. On the sure. Road. Let's take a step back because I think we've gotten to sort of dive right in, which is great, but I want to sort of give our listeners some context. When we talk about deinstitutionalization, what do we mean? What are the set of historical phenomena and political changes that we are talking about there broadly? Sure. So again, this this conversation splits a little bit when you talk about the two different sides of it. But let's take the mental illness side because I think that's the one people are more familiar with. You have in the middle of the 19th century, early 19th century, really, Dorothea Dix, a reformer, was going around to prisons and jails in the United States and was just seeing the abysmal conditions that people with mental illness were being subjected to. They were being chained in, you know, basically what were effectively dungeons. And these people, their only real crime was just causing public disorder by virtue of their mental illness. They weren't, you know, murderers, you know, it was just, this is what society did. They either placed them in an almshouse, which was, you know, basically a, a catch-all facility for undesirables, you know, juvenile delinquents, drunkards, you know, people with developmental disabilities. So they either went to an almshouse, they lived with their families, or they were sent to prison. And so Dorothea Dix goes and sees the conditions in these jails and lobbies state legislatures around the country to build what became what today we call state hospitals for people with mental illness. And every state in the coming decades after Dix's initial push to construct the mental asylums builds these huge imposing structures on thousands of acres of land with the idea being that you were going to take, you know, seriously mentally ill individuals and create a community within a community, right? Like a, a sort of world unto itself where people with severe mental illness could live out their natural lives in a sort of rural utopia. And it was a very paternalistic idea at the time. And ultimately, a lot of those, those treatment practices were discarded over time as psychiatry moves in a more 
pharmacological direction. But the interesting thing about the deinstitutionalization process is that these facilities that were built in the 19th and early 20th century on this moral treatment model, it was called, are for the most part still open in a lot of, I mean, every state in the United States today has at least one state-operated mental institution. And a lot of the institutions they operate are the exact same hospitals that were built in the late 19th, early 20th century on this push from Dorothea Dix. So it's more accurate to say that these facilities were downsized rather than that they were closed. So I'll give you an example in New York, Pilgrim Psychiatric Center, which used to house like 5,000 people. I think in 1955, it had like 5,000 people living there. Today, it has like 300 people there. Mm -hmm. And the types of people that it's serving has changed, right? So in the 19, you know, you could have committed somebody in 1910 for being hysterical or whatever, or for any sort of neurotic condition that today we would never institutionalize a person for against their will. And this is when you start to talk about deinstitutionalization and the movement of people out of these large congregate facilities, you see the negative externalities associated with that, not in the first round of deinstitutionalization. So it's not when you're moving the neurotics and the hysterics and the people who should yeah. have never been institutionalized in the first place out of the facilities, which is really what happens in the 50s into the 60s and a little bit into the early 70s. It's when the push go comes to move people out of the backwards of the asylum, right? The hardest cases within the institution in the 80s and 90s. And when you look at, when you kind of look at graphs of urban crime and homelessness, they do not spike with the initial push to deinstitutionalize in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s. It's in the late 70s, 80s, yeah. the 90s, when you're starting to discharge people from the backwards. And now you fast forward to today, and if, if this history is too, if I'm moving too fast or if I'm missing no, this things. this is good, this is good. If you fast forward to today, when every, every force in our mental health politics is arrayed against a person's being institutionalized, you have the Department of Justice sitting on the edge of their chair waiting to litigate as soon as one too many people is in a psychiatric hospital. You have state departments of health trying to divert admissions to state mental institutions by any means necessary and moving people out to community-based settings. You have activist shops and nonprofit groups whose entire raison d'etre is we want people being served in community-based settings, and we are going to be like a, you know, a hornet's nest anytime the state upticks its inpatient capacity. When you have all of those forces acting in concert, and a person still manages to be committed to a state mental hospital, the, the negative externalities associated with discharging that person and deinstitutionalizing even more, right? you're much more likely to discharge someone who's in imminent danger to himself or someone else because he's been able to clear all of these bureaucratic legal hurdles that were not there in the early 20th century, even into the middle of the Right. 20th. So, so I mean, one, one thing, so you say that they downsized, right? And part of that was because there was, there were too many people, including these people who just never should have been institutionalized. And because there were so many people, you add like overpopulation and all sorts of horror stories about these insane, the ratio between caseworkers to, to, to patients, right? Yes. And the living conditions were just terrible. So could you, could you describe just briefly, because I think this is something people don't know, how legal reforms kind of in like the 70s basically solved this problem? Yes. Like solve, what were the concrete reforms? Solve might be too strong, but significantly reform the system. Took, sure. took the edge off, yeah. Yes. So... I'll, because it's it's a history I'm a little bit more familiar with, I'll pivot to the the developmental disability side of this question. 
in the 19th. So similar abuses happen on both sides. And the, the mm-hmm. abuses that have been chronicled in the state hospitals, there was a famous report by Time magazine in 1948 called The Shame of the States that came out talking about just the deplorable conditions in mm-hmm. mental institutions. And there were similar reports that came out on the developmental disability side. So you had Geraldo Rivera's report in 1973 at Willowbrook State School in New York. And you know that became a huge push for or cause for reform. You had the Suffer the Little Children expose in Pennsylvania at Pennhurst State School in 1968. And basically what people went into these facilities and saw on the, de- on the developmental disability side in particular, but you saw a lot of the same phenomena on the mental right. illness. They, there were children in cribs, like row after row after row of cribs, children up through the age of 10, 11, 12, who had never walked. They had been kept in cribs their entire lives. They were dropped off at the institution as children. And so their legs were emaciated. They never developed properly. And there were two staff members caring for 80 patients. And it was just, I mean, it smelled awful, right. as you can imagine. The, I mean, that was the thing. When you read the, the exposés at these facilities, 201, the thing that the, the first thing they report on is just terrible smell as soon as you first walked into the backwards. And it's just, it, I think that fact speaks to just how overwhelmed these staff were trying to, you know, 10 to 80 patients with only two staff. And so I think it's important. And I appreciate you bringing up the abuse question because you can't fully understand why people on the disability rights side are so passionate about closing these places down until you really understand how bad it was at these facilities in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But what happened was on the on the developmental disability side, so Richard Nixon in 1971 signs an amendment to the Social Security Act called the Intermediate Care Facility Program for mental for people with mental retardation, it was called at the time. And basically any state that wanted to continue to operate one of its congregate institutions for the developmentally disabled had to basically agree and, and, to, and to take federal funds for doing so, right? That's the, that's the mechanism mm-hmm. by which they can regulate. Had to submit itself to like a 236 page book of handbook of regulations for staffing ratios, the type of services you have to provide for clients, the type of federal oversight you have to submit yourself to. So you have to, you know, the Department of Health has to be able to walk in anytime and monitor what's going on. And if there's a violation that puts the entire facility in jeopardy, and so these reforms, every state that continued to operate its state institutions did so through this program. And that just immediately combined with the deinstitutionalization, right? So you're starting to move people out. You're starting to increase the staffing ratios for the people who remain. And you kind of take away that top line problem of too many people, too few attendants. Yeah. And yeah, the, the, especially on the developmental disability side, you these facilities were able to specialize in a way that they weren't before, where they really became specialized places for people with nowhere else to go, with severe medical and behavioral challenges that couldn't be treated in a community-based setting, whereas before they were just catch-all facilities that really didn't have any specific purpose beyond just being a custodial haven for anyone and everyone with a developmental disability. Right. So, so let's, I think, zoom in or uh, shift, shift in time and talk about what the situation is like now. Because I think most people reasonably agree the status quo in the 60s, 70s, 80s was not, or the 60s, 70s was not good. Too tactical term. 
But so you've written about sort of the other end of what institutions are like today and the pressures that they are now under in part because of that legacy. Can you talk about what the experience is like on the ground? Sure. So I, I think pressures that the, the foremost pressure is from disability rights advocates and story I like to tell to kind of illustrate just how strongly they feel about closing these remaining institutions is so in my home in my hometown in Connecticut, we had a huge facility for people with developmental disabilities, and it was like the biggest employer in my town or whatever. And it was one of two state operated institutions in Connecticut. And I spoke to a woman one time who used to work with the state advocacy organization with people with disabilities. And she used to be a big proponent of closing down institutions. That used to be a big, you know, cause of hers. And she ended up going one day into the, that advocacy group's break room. And she saw at opposite ends of the room, two bulletin boards. And on one bulletin board, there were a bunch of photographs of a closure ceremony from one of the state's two institutions. And I think I remember her telling me that there was a brick there that they had chiseled off of the administration building, like a serial killer taking a trophy, you know? So they took the brick from the administration building and put it next to these pictures of the closure at what was called Mansfield Training School, one of the two state institutions for people with developmental disabilities. And then at the other end of the room was this other bulletin board, and it was blank. And the woman went over to one of the staff members and said, well, what's this other bulletin board for? And the staff member said, oh, that's for the day we closed Southbury Training School, which was the facility in my hometown. And so I think that illustrates a little bit, right? Like, if you think through what that means. That means that there are, at the, at the time she's saying this, there are 400 people with developmental disabilities voluntarily living at an institution in my hometown. And this advocacy group is like so committed to moving those people out against their will that it's like in their break room, like sitting and waiting for them to sort of, you know, Hang, hang all the photos, have the ceremony, ceremonially lock the front door, chisel a little brick off the administration building, and the biggest employer in my hometown is gone, and all the people who really, you know, who, who like living where they live, or at least say they do, will be moved out against their will. And these people consider it a moral victory, right? They consider it, you know, it, it's, there is a sort of liturgical element to it in a weird way. And so, so I think having established the history of abuse, I think you can see the pendulum swinging, right? Where people say, okay, it was so bad in the past, we need to sort of as, a, as an act of vengeance now, even though they've been improved, even though they've been reformed, even though the people living there now say they want to live there, we have to close them down sort of as, as almost retribution for how bad it was in the past for all the people who were abused there in the past. And this is maybe more me psychoanalyzing their motives. Maybe it's unwarranted, mm -hmm. but it's also just, it's a bizarre that story always struck me as bizarre, but it was a window into how seriously they take this push to close down the remaining institutions. And so in Pennsylvania, it's the same thing. I asked, so, you know, just a little bit of background on the Pennsylvania story I wrote. Pennsylvania used to operate 23, what were called state schools for people with developmental disabilities. And, and the state school nomenclature is now really just there by inertia. They used to be called schools in the early 20th century because the thought was you would send your son or daughter with Down syndrome or autism to the state school and hopefully they would be returned to the community with the skills they need, the vocational training required to support themselves independently. 
And that actually happened for the great majority of, of these facilities history. Like that model was actually successful. But it was once sort of the word got out of how successful they were that more and more parents with disabled children wanted to send their kids there. And that was really on the developmental disability side. That's what caused the overcrowding was this, this hope that even my severely disabled child will be able to be rehabilitated and reintegrated into society. And when you read the superintendents from the 20s, 30s, and 40s at these facilities, to a one, they note that the character of our institution is becoming less educational and more custodial. They are now shifting, really not through their own design, but because as a necessity of the different population that they're taking in, they're becoming more custodial. And then in time, as we laid out, you know, that custodial character, the ton, you know, the hundreds and in some cases, thousands of people being served at one place on a shoestring budget with a very limited staff, it's just ripe for abuse. And so what happened in Pennsylvania, and I promise I'm, I'm answering your question in a roundabout way. What happened in Pennsylvania is, you know, a lot of these abuses, the 1968 report at Pennhurst State School prompted the state to downsize and close a lot of these developmental disabilities facilities in the decades that followed. So there was just gradual kind of one after another closed until as recently as I think the most recent closure was in 2011. But after that, there were only four institutions for people with developmental disabilities left in Pennsylvania. There's still, you know, the state schools, the same thing. And I, you know, so they made this announcement in 2019 that they were going to close two of the four remaining institutions in Pennsylvania. And at the time, the Secretary of Human Services, Teresa Miller, gets up and says, we are closing these institutions to better recognize the inherent worth and dignity of the people being served at Polk and Whitehaven centers, which are the two centers which are being closed. Right. And again, it's just, it's, it's, it's a recurrence of this theme that yes, these people are here voluntarily. Yes, these people's guardians have in many cases waded through a lot of bureaucratic morass to get their son or daughter admitted to an institution in an age where every force is trying to keep them out, right? And I, I profile one individual in the piece who had bounced around from group home to group home and had been in the community and had finally, his mom discovered, the social worker didn't tell her this place existed, but she was Googling around and found this old state institution about an hour away. And she was like, you know, my, my son has been exposed to pornography. He's been beaten. He's, you know, had to have, have surgery on his eye socket. He's showing up with mysterious bruises. The, his neighbors are calling the cops on him because every time he has a behavioral episode, they freak out. And so like, he's not being integrated into the community, right? He's not having the, the experience that the activists say he's going to have in the community. But, you know, his mom stumbles upon the institutions on the internet and, you know, ultimately gets him admitted after a long protracted battle with, guess who, the Department of Human Services in Pennsylvania, who's opposing him being admitted, right? So this just demonstrates to you that even the department that operates these institutions is philosophically opposed to their continued operation. So much so that they would fight a mother who wants to get her son admitted to that institution in court. And so that's the thing that's really struck me about the pressures that these institutions face to continue to operate is that it's not only the activists from the outside who want to close them, but it's actually the departments of health that want them closed too and work hand in glove 
with the advocacy organizations to downsize the facilities, to cut off admissions to the facilities, and ultimately create this self-fulfilling prophecy where you close admissions down, the census declines, you have these huge physical plants that were built to house thousands of people that are now housing 150. And of course, mm-hmm. that's economically viable to maintain. And then, you know, they come back and say, well, you know, we'd love to continue operating this facility, but it's just not economically viable for us to do so. And so they close it. And so, yeah, I, I mean, it's in terms of, I think the, the question Charles asked was about the continued pressures these places face to operate. The most striking thing from my reporting on this has been that it's not just the advocates who want these places closed. It's actually the departments of health and the official channels that like are responsible for the operation of these facilities that want them closed too. And and do you think that that's in part because the activists succeed through litigation and advocacy in creating conditions in which it's economically difficult to keep them open and the state is just responding to that? And and to what extent is it just pure like the people in these social services departments are themselves activists and just are true believers? What's it's, kind of the interplay of like materialist versus ideological forces? Yes, it's both. And so there was an interesting document that came out in 2012 from the National Council on Disability. So this is a an independent federal agency funded by the federal government. And the document was called De- Deinstitutionalization Unfinished Business. That was the re- that was the title of it. Okay. And basically, it laid out a roadmap for states to close their remaining institutions over and against the preferences of the individuals being served there. And they listed several bullet points for strategy on how they wanted to proceed in closing these institutions. And the first strategy they identified is called close the front door, which is exactly what I laid out before. Do everything in your power not to let new people into the institutions. Because when you let younger people, and this is, on the developmental disability side. So this might be, this is a little bit different from the way it operates on the mental illness side where people are involuntarily committed and and those are different forces. But speaking about the city journal phenomenon I cover or the phenomenon I covered in city journal, their first step is, okay, close the admissions to the institution. Because once you have young people in there, young stakeholders in the future of this facility, their parents are much more likely to be active and involved. Whereas if you have a very elderly population that's just kind of dying mm-hmm. by attrition or moving out, their parents are starting to die off. They have fewer interested stakeholders in their well-being and the continued operation of the institution. And so it's much easier to primar- to prematurely for, you know, close a facility when you don't have as many activist parents who are pushing against it and younger people who have a longer life to live in the facility. So they say close the front door and that sets in motion the exact process I said, right, where People either move out and the sorts of people who move out are more often the people with fewer Mm -hmm. medical and behavioral needs. So they're less expensive to treat. And so the people who remain are older, number one, more significantly disabled, number two, and they're Mm -hmm. living on, like I said, a physical plant built for thousands of people that's now housing, you know, 90. And so that colludes to create, you know, just a totally financially insolvent situation or unsustainable situation, I should say. Another strategy item listed in that toolkit, and I think this is interesting, is they said, focus on closure as a civil rights issue, not a cost issue, right? That, because so often, and this is, I kind of call it a cope a little bit, there are a lot of people 
you know, on my side of this issue who will say, oh, these are just greedy departments of health that don't want to operate these expensive state institutions. And they just want to throw these people to the wolves and put them right. in less expensive community-based care. I don't think that's it at all. I think the act, act, activists and advocates who want to close these places down are totally clear-eyed about the fact that, as I mentioned before, it's not necessarily cheaper to provide services right. in a community-based setting. And even if it were, I mean, in my piece at the at City Journal, you can read through, I asked advocates point blank, like, if you were made king of the universe tomorrow, would you close every remaining state institution? And they're like, yes, I would, you know? Because it's not about the money for them. It's not about how much it costs. It's about what they view as a civil rights abuse of people with disabilities that needs to end not in five years, not in 10 years, but tomorrow. And any concession they make to the existence of these institutions, it's a little bit like, you know, it's like any other, you know, when, when you create a moral absolute, and, you know, in this case, the existence of institutions is is bad, you know bad is maybe a vague way to put it, but any compromise with the existence of those institutions is like morally, you know, tainted. Same way, like you can't compromise with racists or you can't compromise with the forces of sexism, right? Like the goal is abolition at all times. And they're always focused on abolition. And that's why I, I, I worry for a lot of the people who are left in these facilities is because the people who are opposed to them don't see Okay, like we'll let we'll let the people who are living there and want to live there, we'll let them die off. And when the last person dies off, we'll close the institution. They they are not going to allow people that peace. They it needs to happen tomorrow, and if not tomorrow, the day after that. So let me just ask you about that. You know that, and we we touched on this a little bit, but the sort of the ideological component. But I want to look at the ideological component as as sort of a set of motive as a motivator. You know what what motivates people? You're alluding to. Disability, disability rights advocates or de deinstitutionalization advocates sort of seeing this entirely as an issue of rights. How do you get to that perspective? What, you know, what characterizes the advocate? What's the, what are the, the incentive that sort of push them towards saying this, how you think about the world, if any? So I think that it's, it's partially a result of an overreaction to abuses in the sixties. Like I, I really do think it's that simple on some level where they, they think these facilities really haven't changed much since 1964 and think that anyone living in a state institution in 2023 is having the same experience as someone who was living there in 1955 or whatever. But on a more basic level, like when you hear them speak, it's very idealistic. Like they'll say every single person, regardless of the severity of their disability, can be served in a community-based setting. And it's the sort of thing where you don't know whether they're stating it as a as an empirical thing or a normative thing, right? Is, is it like, you know, because as I lay out in the piece, like there are obviously people who cannot be served in a community-based setting. Like that's just clearly the case. But I think, you know, it's it's just a part of a broader disability rights ideology that says anytime a person with a disability is having a hard time adapting to mainstream society, it's mainstream society that has to change and not the person with a disability or or, or not creating some alternative paradigm for the person with a disability. It's the mainstream society that has to change. And so even when I point to the example of the man, Joey Jennings in the piece, who is having the cops called on him when he goes to the, to the pool and has an outburst, that's the neighbor's fault. That's not Joey Jennings' fault for having an outburst at the pool. That is the neighbor's fault for having a problem, yeah. right? It's, it is the social environment in which these people are living, that's the problem, not the person with the disability. This, I, this, I'll keep going. No, no, go ahead. 
I was going to say, I mean, this part of what seems to be happening here is that the 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 moral logic of the civil rights movement, which involved racism and kind of white communities and tolerance of black people, has been imported into the disability context. Because the whole the whole point of civil rights was these people have rights, and it's the society and community's obligation to respect them. Any kind of attempt to accommodate, you know, white people's desire to live in their own neighborhoods or have their own swimming pools, you mentioned the example of, well, that's illegitimate, right? And we all agree, yes, you know, that was illegitimate. It's good that we had civil rights movement. But now with disability rights, it's, it's that same framework imported into the context in which the the differences between people are not merely skin deep. They are very profound, right? You know, some people really just have mental and behavioral problems that other people don't. And when you sort of reframe those mental and behavioral problems as a protected class along the same lines as race or gender, just seems like that's a recipe to make impossible the sort of pragmatic compromises that all sensible people would intuitively think have to be made here. Well, that's that's exactly right. And it, it's actually it goes back to something Charles said in the intro where something when I when I support basically the continued operation of these institutions and I should be clear, I'm not advocating for, you know, 95 percent of people with developmental disabilities to be locked away in an institution or anything like that. It's, it's, it's a question of whether they should be continued to allow be allowed to exist. And, and maybe, you know, you don't want to put a number on it, but we're talking about, you know, three to 5% of the dis- developmentally disabled population who could even stand to benefit from a more regimented environment like an institution. But whenever, you know, you support that, you immediately get the response, well, hey, would, would you want to live in an institution? How would you like to live in an institution? And basically that perspective suggests that there is nothing meaningfully different between me and a person with a 20 IQ who can't, who like basically is an infant right? And can't do anything for himself. And like, maybe stability means a lot more to the person with a 20 IQ who is absolutely helpless than to me, you know, and I'm, you know, like a person who is able to hold down a steady job and work a nine to five job and, you know, engage in social interactions and and all that, like, you know, yes, people with disabilities want the same things that we do on some level. Okay. And that's totally true. And for a long time, people denied that and said, okay, well, it's fine that we're abusing or mistreating this person because he's, you know, like Martin Luther said, you know, that people with mental retardation or whatever at the time, not, it wasn't called that at the time, but to use an older term, that they didn't have souls. So it really didn't matter how you treated them, yada, yada. And so that line of thinking is real. Okay. And that line of thinking should be resisted. But it's also the case that like, while they do, while people with disabilities do want love, affection, all the same things that Every, pe- every person without those sorts of disabilities wants. It's also true that they have different priorities depending on their level of need. And mm-hmm. maybe, yes, maybe the person whose life is entirely structured for them within the institution is deriving something out of that setting that I would not if I were there. And so, no, I don't think it's, I don't think I would have to voluntarily want to sign up and live at a state-operated institution for people with developmental disabilities to be able to, in good conscience and in good faith, defend their existence for people with really severe behavioral medical issues. No, I don't. Right. Well, so one other kind of civil rights parallel I want to bring up is related issues of 
bureaucratic mission creep and legal incentives. So on the one hand, you know, we often we often talk about how once an NGO springs up to solve a problem, the problem will be solved with legislation, kind of like you could argue civil rights context, but then and other things. But then the the actors, groups, and NGOs aren't gonna pick up shop and go home. They have to kind of constantly manufacture new causes and crusades to justify their existence. And then that process tends to interact with the law, right? And, you know, the law creates these incentives for corporations to have compliance departments, which are then staffed with activists who have their own incentives to perpetuate their own employment, leading to the constant expansion and proliferation of, say, DEI offices. I I think you can tell a similar story potentially about disability law and the Americans with Disabilities Act, where there really were these abuses, as you talked about and conceded. You get these activists who try to solve a problem. They they broadly do succeed in solving it with a number of laws, not just the ADA, but but other things. But then what are you left with? This whole big bureaucratic machine that needs excuses to kind of keep its people employed, as well as this entirely new kind of legal technology that puts pressure on private institutions and puts pressure on the government and encourages those places to hire the activists in a kind of compliance role. I mean, do you think that that is a, that that's going on? Like, what what do you make of that model? Yes. No, that's, it's so funny you bring that up. I, I had forgotten to bring this out. I was speaking about this with somebody earlier and it's, so when you look around the country at the move to close down these institutions, what happens in almost every legislative session in a state that still has a state-operated disability institution? So unlike on the mental health side, where every state still has at least one state hospital for the mentally ill, because that's really where they send, if somebody's adjudicated not guilty by reason of insanity, they're going to go to the state hospital, right? Um, mm-hmm. But on the developmental disability side, there are 17 states that don't operate a public institution for the disabled at all. They've closed them all down. And so every state that still has these institutions left has a huge contingent of families with like very mildly disabled children who like link arms with the what's called the ARC. So these other big disability rights groups. And they show up at the state capitol on the first few days of the legislative session and push for the closure of their remaining institutions. Okay, so this is a big legislative push that happens around the country. The interesting thing is, and just in the context of your question, Aaron, the, you know, I sort of call it, or I've heard it called King George in retirement syndrome, where you sort of slay the dragon and then you still have to find new dragons to slay. Yes. These exact same disability groups, once all of the state institutions are closed, will pivot their attention to the larger group homes that are left in the state that they say take on an institutional character. And so the four, five, six, seven, eight person group homes become the new institutions. And the, the irony is many of the families that link arms with the ARC and say, my disabled son or daughter doesn't need an institution. Nobody lives, needs to live in an institution. It is precisely their child's group home that is next to go. It's as soon as the, the, organizations have closed the state institutions, chisel a brick off of the administration building and lock the front door because these institute, these organizations still have an incentive to find new dragons and to slay more dragons and to get another brick for their, you know, break office or whatever. They pivot their attention. They don't say, okay, like our mission is done here. We've closed all the institutions. We're going to go home. 
they focus on the group homes and right. they focus. And once they close the eight person group homes, it's the six person group homes, then the four person group homes. And so, yeah, that, that incentive totally exists. And it's something I I've tried to point out again and again, like when I've spoken to, you know, families, you know, just in the Connecticut context, cause I, you know, have spent a lot of time at that institution and people have asked me, they, they're like, look, my, my kid, you know, who has down syndrome, like runs a hot dog stand. And I'm like, that's great. You know, but first of all, like you have, it's none of your business. Why, you know, these people are voluntarily living there. Like that is, that does not concern you first of all. But second, even if you get what you want and all of the people at the institution in my hometown are forcibly relocated, you know, the, the exact same groups that you're linking arms with are going to come after your, the group home where your kid lives. So it's like, it's that incentive, which exists, you know, at every level of, you know, the NGO complex totally exists with these disability rights groups for sure. So I think, I think we want to move into closing thoughts soon, but before we do that, I want to ask you one other piece that you wrote that's related to this project where you, you went and visited Angola prison, which is one of America's most infamous prisons, one of the, the high security facility in Louisiana and wrote about the inmate experience there. And I just sort of wonder if you could talk very briefly about that and how that fits into the broader theme of, I guess, the virtue of institutions for certain people. Yeah, I think if there is like a thematic through line between that piece and some of the other work I've done on, on institutionalization for both the developmentally disabled and people with mental illness. Like I think, and there's, and I, I try to concede at every turn in that Angola piece that it is very easy for a journalist from the outside to come, come in and get a particular impression of a facility that doesn't necessarily match the everyday experience of the inmate. And I, there's only so much that I could see when I went down there, but I did, you know, the, the thing that was really striking to me. So I, I just some background and I know you want it to be quick, so I'll be, I'll be concise. The, you know, I went down to cover the prison rodeo that they have at Angola every year. And it really turned into a bigger piece just on the prison itself, which is much maligned. And the first thing that strikes you when you get down to Angola is that it's not you know, uh, Metro Metropolitan Correctional Center in Chicago, where it's a 27 story building with a single rooftop exercise yard where 700 men, you know, basically are serving long sentences. And some of them might die having never seen the outside of a 27 story building in downtown Chicago. And then you get to Angola and it's 18,000 acres. I mean, the actual physical plant is bigger than the city of Manhattan. And you see inmates riding around on bicycles and there's nobody, you know, there's no guard there standing by with a gun pointed at him the whole time. You know, like he has, you know, more or less like the sorts of freedom I had, you know, with my own neighborhood as a kid. And so that was like really jarring to get onto the grounds and to just see all of these men who, I mean, 90% of the inmates at Angola are lifers. So they're there for the most common charge of second degree homicide. Some of them are, are in for just heinous cases of rape and, you know, it's awful. But these men are being given like way more freedom than the men at Metropolitan Correctional Center in Chicago, even though like on a, you know, the average, the average inmate at Angola is convicted of a crime several orders of magnitude worse than the average inmate at MCC Chicago. So that was sort of the first thing that jumped out to me. And the second thing was, you know, after all of the, the exposés, you know, like Vice went, Vice Magazine went down and is like, oh, this is like a modern day plantation you know, because the inmates are 70% black and they have an agricultural program. And so it's like, yeah, he's, I think the, the journalist said it's a, a broke ass version of a modern day plantation with Michelobes instead of juleps or something like that. And it's like, all right, you know, but 
yeah, it's still a prison. It's not a, you know, it's not like a, you know, I'm going on a retreat or something, but 201, every single inmate I asked at every wing of the prison who had every incentive, you know, the journalist is in town, has every incentive to be like, this place is a hellhole. They're treating me terrible here, you know, terribly here. 201, they're like, yeah, basically, like, we, we've got a good thing going here, you know? Like, we have a lot of freedom. And, like, yeah, they're not gonna, they're not gonna say that the guards and the warden are great to a journalist, but basically they're like, yeah, I can go to sleep peacefully around here. You know, like, this place used to be the, called the Alcatraz of the South. Men would stack magazines on their chest when they went to sleep because they were afraid of getting shivved in the middle of the night. And, yeah, the guy's like, I can, I can go to sleep peacefully around here, like, there's this culture at Angola, and, and I'll tie this back to the institutional point here. There's this culture at Angola where you're given way more freedom than you have proven you deserve, right? You have proven on the outside, when you've been entrusted with freedom before, you've done terrible things with it. But the administration, the warden at Angola, basically gives these men, you know, like, look, you're probably going to die here, okay? You're at 90% of your in for life. We're going to give you some freedom, and basically a, a community within a community, a way to experience a shell of what life is like on the outside. And I think that that model, you know, it's kind of akin to a monastery or, or a religious order or a, a world set apart, for some people, can be a sort of haven, can be a sort of asylum, can be a sort of retreat into something that isn't available to people on the unstructured in the unstructured chaos of the outside world. So for people with predilections to violence, and there's a really bad and you know nefarious way you can turn my argument, and I'm not bringing it in that direction. But for some people, I do think at some points in their lives, whether it's as you age, if you acquire a disability, if you have a psychotic break, whatever, the, the security, the stability, the regimentation of institutional life can, in a way that people on the outside don't fully appreciate, can be a kind of reprieve in asylum. So I saw a little right. bit of well, and I think what what comes out there is it's it's structure and order are for these men conditions for a kind of freedom, right? They wouldn't be able to experience that freedom if there wasn't this strict regimentation. Yes. Yeah. Why don't we take that opportunity to to offer some closing thoughts, Aaron? What's what's your takeaway from the conversation? Reading John's piece. I really am struck by the way in which the disability rights activists in the name of freedom and choice and liberal values end up advocating that freedom and choice be taken away from people, namely the freedom and choice to live in the institutions they want to live in and to get the kind of help that they need. The, the reason I'm, I'm particularly struck by that I've written about this. I wrote about this when I was in college for the school newspaper, but a little personal story. So when I was little, I was diagnosed with autism, not like severe life-threatening autism as some people have, but you know, like serious enough to get diagnosed. And my parents got me a lot of occupational, physical, verbal therapy, other interventions. And who knows how much of a difference those made versus just some people organically maybe quote unquote grow out of things, you know, who knows. But but my guess is that those interventions were the reason why within a couple years of this diagnosis, I improved greatly along a number of dimensions and having had, you know, like a speech delay 
you know, went from what I, I don't know what the percentile was, but like went from not from not being where I was supposed to be on verbal stuff to having a very, very high verbal IQ and, you know, ahead of most other people and then ended up in like normal good schools and then went to Yale and was successful, right? Yeah, one doesn't know how you can't prove that the interventions made a difference, but they probably did. And so it's always really bothered me having had that experience when I hear people say, oh, well, autism is just like, you know, a cool part of your personality and it would be bad to like try to quote unquote fix people with autism. And you even see these like autism advocacy groups that will make this argument. And of course, what are the autism advocacy groups making that argument? It's the people with autism who are high enough functioning that for them, autism is kind of like what autism now maybe is for me or maybe for Charles. Charles is probably a little autistic too, right? Where it's like, we're just kind of weird Jewish guys who are have, a li- have some social idiosyncrasies and can be kind of hyper-focused on work and are reasonably high IQ. But like, we're basically capable of having normal friendships and like, you know, love lives and all that stuff, right? You know, it's those, those are the people mostly who are making that kind of argument of, oh, just, you know, it's, it's just a different way of being in the world. But there are these people with autism who like, you know, will literally bash their heads in if they're not physically restrained. And though, like, that is that is not the kind of condition that we should just say, oh, it's a different way of being in the world. It's not good, right? And to the extent it can be fixed with research and modern medicine and psychological intervention, it should be. So anyway, this is sort of a tangent, but yeah, on just a personal level, it really does bother me that these self-appointed disability activists essentially claiming to speak for all disabled people end up speaking only for a subset of what you might call barely or moderately disabled people and not the people who really do need a lot of structured intervention. Sorry, that's a tangent. But To that, I'll sort of add, in closing, part of what I wanted to ask John very briefly with the Angola piece is just, you know, so I've, I've, I'm in the middle of a project on making the criminal justice system better. One of my focuses is this notion of rehabilitation. And one of the dirty secrets is that we don't really know how to rehabilitate people in prisons. A lot of this is because all the research is really bad. You know, I think there were some things that seem to have some evidence where it's, you know, the, the effect sizes are small, but real. You can help on the margins, but a large bulk of the population keep recidivating. The other interesting thing is that this is true, inter, you know, across country, as far as we can tell, claims that like the dramatically lower recidivism rates in, in Scandinavian countries are at least more complicated than they initially appear. Which is just that the problem of rehabilitation is at least as hard as it was, gosh, 50 years ago, Robert Martinson wrote What Works, which is the original text, arguing rehabilitation maybe doesn't work so well. And, you know, what, what Martinson, I promise this coming back to socialization, Martinson ends up sort of giving way to Tim Crimmins, who we should have on the show, by the way. Tim Crimmins wrote a great piece in American Affairs, making the point that because Martinson basically convinced the international establishment, rehabilitation doesn't work, creates the vacuum which James Q. Wilson can step, the great politicist James Q. Wilson, because seven say, look, the way to solve crime is incapacitation. Prisons are incapacitative. Their function is to like, you know, house house dangerous people and keep them away from the public. And that's how we drive the crime rate down. And what you know, what I think is interesting, and this comes full circle about the the conceit that we've been talking around that some people live better in institutional settings. What I take from the Angola piece is 
you know, one way to frame the benefit of prisons is that they can potentially be rehabilitated or equip you to live outside. But another way to frame it is you can conceive of prisons as communities for people who cannot live ordered lives absent the structure the prison provides. So we can't safely live ordered life absent the structure provides. Hey, you know, I think anecdotally you see lots of people who turn their lives around in prison and then they get out and their lives fell apart again. And the reality is they, they will, you know, they'll reoffend just so they can go back because that was the structure they needed to live well. Which is different both from the sort of the quote unquote rehabilitative ideal, the idea that prison can quote unquote fix people, but also different from the, the sort of pure incapacitation model. It suggests that, you know, once once you embrace the idea that some people need more structure than others, there are real potential benefits to be reaped. On that very cheery note, why don't we do some recommendations? Aaron, do you have one? Anybody first? Yeah, there's a really good book. I read it a long time ago. It's called Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes. It's about a mentally retarded man, whatever the politically correct term is, mentally handicapped. It has like a clinically significant low IQ. And he's given some kind of experimental treatment to make him, to cure him of this mental retardation, which ends up making him into a genius. And then the treatment has unexpected side effects and things spiral and without giving anything away it, it, it's a pretty sad story it has a very sad ending but it's a good it's a good book that i think novel but it i think does a good job of drawing out the pathos of mental limitation and incapacitation and also and without playing this you know stupid identity politics game where being mentally disabled is just you know oh it's just it's just who I am. It's just, or mentally ill. It's just a disability that's part of my identity. I mean, it's very clear eyed about the tragedy of mental, of various forms of mental deficiency. And I think I commend it for that reason. I'm going to, I'm going to upset John and recommend some Michelle Foucault. Foucault, obviously one of the godfathers of the digitization movement. His work, Madness and Civilization, also sort of Discipline and Punish. Important textbooks worth reading. I think he's sort of a, He's he's a thinker. He, he there, there, there's a lot in there in every book by Foucault. Much of it you can disagree with. Much of it you can agree with. My favorite book by Foucault, the first one that I really read, is The Order of Things, which is one of his earlier books about the structure of knowledge. That's my plug this week, you know. So so you can read Flash Outside or you can read Foucault. Those those your picks, listeners. John, your recommendation for our listeners' from our own work from somebody else's things they should know about. Sure. So just. The theme, I guess, going off of the themes we spoke about in this episode, spoken about in this episode, I'd recommend E. Fuller Torrey's book, The Insanity Offense. It was written in the 90s, and it's just about kind of what I was touching on a little bit earlier in the podcast about how deinstitutionalization played out over time and the, you know, the sense in which it wasn't the first few rounds of deinstitutionalization that caused the negative externalities, but it was the later rounds that really caused what we identify as the modern homelessness problem and so forth. So Ifo Lertori is just a wonderful thinker. And unfortunately, he's he's getting up there in age and ailing in health. But his his book, The Insanity Offense, is one of several canonical works, I'd say, he's written in this in this field. So The Insanity Offense would be my recommendation. Well, thank you, John, for joining us on Institutionalized. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, institutionalization orders, you'd like to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Siberium. I think that's about all the time that we are giving to this episode. So until next time, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Siberium. You've been listening to Institutionalize. We hope you'll join us again soon. Mm-hmm.